Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with biologist and writer Dr. Rob Dunn, a professor in the Biological Sciences Department at North Carolina State University. Rob has written several books, including Never Home Alone and The Wildlife of Our Bodies, and his essays have appeared in magazines such as Scientific American, Smithsonian Magazine, and National Geographic. Rob brings a refreshingly down-to-earth approach to understanding the complex microsystems he studies. For all of you germ-curious people out there, this may be the episode for you. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Rob. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us what's on the top of your mind right now. Food, the future, what lives in homes, these are on the top of my mind. Somehow simultaneously thinking a lot about like 100 million years from now and sourdough bread. (laughs) From your perspective as a biologist, what is this moment we're in right now with COVID-19 revealing? I mean, I think it's revealing so many things at once. One of the things that it's a very visceral reminder of is that we're still biological, mm-hmm. that we're still connected to the biological world, that an individual virus particle that infected an individual human in China could change all of global society. It's almost impossible to believe that this could happen at the same time that we imagine ourselves to be so technological in other ways. We can implant electrodes in brains, we can do all kinds of crazy things, and yet we're still so very biological. I think that's one of the things that it reminds me of. Another thing that's been really interesting just on a very immediate level is watching my my friends and neighbors spend more time outside in the biological world again. Mm. And so, like, here's this one part of the biological world that stopped us totally short. And it's, it's reminded us to go outside and pay attention to things. And so people are telling me about birds they saw and heard. And mm. what's this insect in my backyard? So weirdly, somehow the virus has reminded us of another aspect of the biological world. And, and so I think those two, those two features seem really um, prominent in my own experience. So, Rob, the pandemic's caused us to develop all kinds of new sanitary protocols in our home, right? All of a sudden, we're washing our hands all the time. We're sanitizing the food and household products that come into our home. Do you think we're overcompensating with that process uh, in the last few months? Yeah, it's a tricky question. So, for sure, you know, washing your hands with soap and water is so hugely beneficial and it saves so many lives. And so, that's an easy one. We should just say, like, don't even worry about it. Just keep doing it. But then there's some of the other stuff, like, you know, how often do you scrub your house and what is that doing? And are there circumstances in which if you kill all the good bacteria in your kitchen, you actually make it easier for a virus to hang out with for slightly longer? And we really don't know for things like that. The other piece that we don't know about is, you know, in an average year, if you look at what's the single best predictor of when people use antibiotics? It's cold and flu season. Mm. And colds and flus are viruses. Antibiotics have no effect on them whatsoever. But people feel sick. They want to feel better. They know antibiotics are powerful, so they take them. And so my greatest worry is actually that people are using antibiotics and pretty strong antimicrobials, even though they're not useful at all in this moment to help with COVID. 
And that could have lots of long-term impacts. How about just the basic idea of cleaning our food? You know, this idea that actually we don't really understand it. There was an article in the Times about surfaces and are they really carrying the virus? I know that you're not an epidemiologist or an expert in these things, but I'm sure you're paying attention to this. Are there specific protocols that we're doing with our food that might be too much? Should we be washing our vegetables and fruit with soap and water? Yeah, that's a tricky one. And it was tricky even before COVID to know how much should you be washing your fruits and vegetables. I mean, a lot of this stuff we most worry about on fruits and vegetables doesn't wash off very well. Mm. And so, you know, we imagine like, ooh, we now have a clean blueberry. Um, <laughs> you know, but a lot of pesticides don't wash up very well with soap and water. So some of those are hanging pretty tight. And some pathogens don't mind soap and water at all. And so there's that part even outside of COVID. And then there's the question of like, well, what do you do to get the virus that causes COVID-19 off of food? And nobody knows. We're guessing at this point. Mm. It's probably the case that if you leave fruits and vegetables out for a while, just being out in the air on a surface for a while for viruses like COVID tends to eventually kill them. They don't like to be in that sort of situation, especially if it's kind of dry. And so it may be that just leaving stuff out for a while is better than scrubbing it. But it's, it's tricky because we don't, we don't know yet. And so when you have these, these really high risks of, of a pathogen, what do you advise people to do? And it's, it's hard. And I'm watching public health officials in different states make really different decisions about what those risks are like. And so in North Carolina, the advice has mostly been, well, you know, worry about other stuff. Don't worry so much about food and packages. And other states have very different messages. Mm. When did we begin as a society to think of all germs as bad? You know, is it relatively new? Has this been happening for a while? And connected to that, why do we know so little about the microbes in our lives? So the forefather of microbiology is this amazing Dutch dude, Anton van Leeuwenhoek. And he is the first one to discover microbes. He's the first one to discover bacteria. And for him, it was all about wonder. Like he just ran through this wonder-filled world and discovered new thing after new thing and then wrote the Royal Society in London about it. And that was the story. It was just this wonderful world that he alone was seeing and he could tell you about it. It wasn't really until 150 or more years later that people started to realize that a subset of those species around us were potentially very, very bad. And it came with germ theory. It came fits and starts. Once people started to realize, you know, now we're in the 1800s, that a subset of these species were bad, it became pretty easy to convince people that, that they were all maybe bad. And so when cholera epidemics were sweeping through London, there are great depictions of what the life in water might look like. And suddenly all of the teeny tiny species look like demons. You know, they all have like little faces, <laughs> they're devil-like. And so we started that shift in the 1800s toward thinking like, oh, this small stuff, it can kill you. So that must mean like most of it is kind of suspect. Mm. Then that just sort of got progressively more and more until we get to our modern moment. Let's say like 1980s, like most of the descriptions in the popular press of small species were bad. They were, there was no discussion of the microbiome. It was all these evil small creatures that you should scrub away which I still think like when I go talk to big public audiences, that's pretty deeply rooted in our relationship to small stuff now. We, I think our default is 
it's, it's bad and nasty. Mm. And as for like why we have that idea so firmly rooted, why it's so easy to imagine that and why it's taken so long to realize it's more complex, I would say partially we knew it was complex for a long time, but it's hard to think about complexity in something you can't see. Mm. And, and so it's kind of like, it's an easy place to throw our, whatever our societal beliefs are at a particular moment, we throw them at the invisible life and they stick pretty well. But the other part is we're still so ignorant. Recently, there was an estimate of the number of bacteria species on earth. And the estimate was that there might be a trillion species. Now, I, I think that's too high, but we're so ignorant that nobody's going to be able to prove that's too high for tens or hundreds of years. And, and so mm. I think we look around at all these technologies that we have. You know, I can now take a swab of dust from your house and I can tell you what species are present in your house just based on the DNA in that dust. Mm. That's almost miraculous. But at the same time, in the average house, most of the fungus species that are present don't yet have names. And so there's this weird, like, look, we have a powerful candle. And then, oh, wait, the darkness is immense. Mm. And then some new thing comes across the planet, and we have to figure out everything about its biology all at once. And all of this becomes very tangible. You have this new project at your lab about the study of sourdough, which couldn't be more timely. I think there's probably more sourdough being made now than ever before. <laughs> Why are you studying sourdough and what can we learn from sourdough? We're studying sourdough because it's super interesting. You take flour and water and you mix them together and you get a microbial community that produces carbon dioxide, which makes bread rise, and acid, which makes it a little bit sour, and then all kinds of other flavors and aromas. And so somehow there's this very simple process you can undertake that predictably yields this kind of community and so on the, the one hand it, like i want to figure out what that magic is like how do you mm. do that and how did people figure this out in ancient egypt or even much earlier on the other hand we work a lot on the life in houses and a lot of the time we spend trying to convince people that that life isn't all bad and sourdough is actually this place where people are already convinced you know if you have your sourdough starter you already love it if it's being good to you and so rather than fight against this idea that all microbes are bad, why don't we start with microbes people already think are good and help figure out what their story is. And then it turns out that it, the more you study something like sourdough, the more kinds of mysteries there are. So, you know, where do these microbes come from that are in the, this flour and water mixture? And some of them turn out to come from the bakers. And so like individual bakers have individual sourdough flavors that are partially from the microbes that they gave to the starter, or if, if you have your grandma's starter, you might have your grandma's microbes in it. And so you could actually be tasting your grandma when you make bread. And so that's kind of gross and transgressive. So I like that part too. Yeah. yeah it's very odd. I mean, people are just starting to do it now and, and creating starters. And they're essentially just capturing the, the microbes in their own environment. Do you think that they're enjoying the sourdough even more because it's, it's kind of like eating yourself in your own environment. There's this holistic circle to it. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Do you have a starter right now? My 13-year-old's been making sourdough uh, for the last couple of months. And for some reason, every time we eat it, it's like better than any other bread we could ever eat. And I'm wondering, is it because it's contained in our home? There's something about a sense of place with it on a kind of primordial level. Yeah, I mean, that, that resonates with me personally. 
I don't know. That's a good question. We could ask our participants. Matthew Booker, who's a historian here at North Carolina State University where I work, he's talked a lot to people about the stories of their older starters. And, and very often the way people talk about those starters is as though they are family members. Mm. And starters typically have names. People talk about a sense of loss when the starter dies. And so in a way, you know, maybe, yeah, that's a good question. Do people talk about their new starters the way you would talk about a puppy? Right. Ooh, look at its ears. They're so soury. <laughs> well, in addition to sourdough, you've also studied the belly button and shower heads. Can you tell us a bit about what you learned? I guess you can start with the belly button. What you learned by studying the belly button? It started almost as an art project more than a science project where we just wanted to engage people in thinking about the fact that they were covered in microbes, that this was an inescapable feature of living, and that we needed to start having healthier conversations about that reality. And so we were having people swab themselves, and we would then identify the microbes that are on the swabs. And we'd grow them sometimes, or we would just look at their DNA, sort of CSI belly button. <laughs> and uh, as we started doing it, it quickly became clear that there were a bunch of mysteries of the belly button that nobody had resolved, which were really mysteries of the skin. And the belly button was a funny place to think about skin. So for example, like nobody understood like what determines, like why is your belly button microbe, why are they different than mine? Or why are your skin microbes different than mine? And what does that mean? And, and so when we first started doing that work, it was really like an expedition into a tropical rainforest where we didn't know what to look for. We didn't know what the questions were. And then we started to hone in and figure out, well, oh, look, if you wear antiperspirant, it has a huge effect on which skin microbes you have and even your belly button microbes. Oh, look, if you look at some specific genes, some genes have a big effect on which microbes live in your skin. And so we started to sort those sorts of things out. And the belly button just kept being this funny way to talk about it. And so it was a serious kind of sampling. And yet you can't say belly button and, and then make a mean face. Well, you can try. Go <laughs> and it turns out like mo in most languages, belly button is a pretty funny word. And, and so that's how we started on that project. And then it started to get serious because we started to realize, well, which microbes you have in your skin affect what your risk is for different pathogens, because that's your first line of defense against pathogens. Hmm. When the virus that causes COVID-19 lands on your skin, the first thing it hits is not your immune system. It's this like carpet-like layer of microbes on your skin. And so it's, it's almost certainly true that which microbes people have on their skin and in their lungs are impacting what happens if they bump into the virus that causes COVID-19. And so that part was kind of serious. The other part that got really interesting was that in your belly button, you have glands called apocrine glands, which are the same as your armpit glands. And so if you like raise your arm, just humor me, but the, raise your arm for a minute, listeners. And that smell is actually being produced by bacteria that live in those glands. And it appears that the only reason those glands evolved was to feed those microbes and produce those aromas. And so then there's this other thing of like, wait a minute, our belly buttons and our armpits are specifically feeding special stinky microbes. Then what is, what's going on there? And so there are all these other questions that it led us to. It started as just fun and became very scientifically rewarding. Mm. And how about shower heads? What did you learn from shower, studying shower heads? Uh, it's, belly buttons are wonderful and shower heads are just kind of gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> In your tap water, everybody's tap water is full of microbes. And the only question is which microbes. And it turns out that those microbes, they can grab onto the shower head as they're kind of flying past and they can build a little fecal apartment called a biofilm. 
and then they live in that apartment and they gather, they're like little sea anemones of the household piping and gather what goes past them. The vast majority of the time, those little communities are benign and every so often they can become problematic. Hmm. We studied what determines when they're benign and when they're problematic. And it turned out that one of the things that causes trouble is if water systems are very heavily chlorinated, that they favor these weird microbes that are chlorine tolerant, that are normally never pathogens, but in the context of sort of households with very chlorinated water and immunocompromised people, they can become problematic. The very unsatisfying part of that is that if you live someplace where the water that your city relies on has become polluted or isn't enough for the city, you have to treat it. There's like no other way around it. And so we have this reality that once we screw up our water systems and we have to chlorinate it, the chlorination causes these weird ecological communities. And until we figure out some new solution, you know, your best bet is to move <laughs> in some ways right. if, if, if you're at risk from those microbes. Is UV the same as chlorine? Like, you know, we all live in these places and we're, we're, we're told to buy filtration, which is like a big trend, I guess, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. UV, uh, charcoal, all sorts of things. Are you a fan of those if you have just like a sort of safe flora in your water? Or do you think that they are possibly over sanitizing our water? I've not seen great studies. I mean, so I think in general, the way I see the world of small things is that nothing we do gets rid of them. Everything we do favors some and disfavors others. Mm. And so the question is, with those treatments, which things are being disfavored and which things are being favored? And I, I don't know, and I've not actually seen very good data on, on that question, but that's how I would ask it. I would want to know which things in, in doing this are we making more common and which ones are we making more mm. rare? In terms of proportions, what's the breakdown of these microbial species when it comes to you know whether they're harmful or beneficial or benign? So we, we found like in total on houses around the world, somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 different life forms, species, whatever, whatever you want to call them. And of those, something like 20 to 30 are regularly human pathogens which is to say the vast majority of the microscopic species you encounter every day are either benign or beneficial, and most have never, ever been studied. Hmm. And so the great successes of our public health systems are figuring out how to deal with those most deadly things. And so that's like hand-washing works great because it doesn't change with soap and water. It doesn't change your skin microbiota as far as anybody's figured out. You still have your layer of good microbes in your skin, and it gets rid of whatever just landed on you. Vaccination works great. It targets specific things. Public health has really figured out great ways to disfavor some while allowing others to stay in peace. And so we need to keep doing those things because it's really not very many things that are such existential threats to us. Right. Are are we affecting somehow the evolutionary process by overusing the cleaning products that are common in our houses? So for antibiotics, for sure. So when when people overuse antibiotics, they favor bacteria species that are resistant to those antibiotics. There's a great experiment by Michael Bame at Harvard where he makes a giant Petri dish and it has different concentrations of antibiotics from the outside into the middle and the middle is like atomic levels of antibiotics. Mm. And then he just releases bacteria on both ends that are not resistant in any way to antibiotics. And in 11 days, 
numerous different lineages evolve that are able to live in the highest antibiotic concentration. And so this is what we do when we overuse the things that we, we use to kill species. We, we favor species that can deal with those conditions. You know, it's worth remembering that all the small species around us evolve so much more quickly than we are typically clever. Our, the rate of our cleverness is slower than the rate of their evolution. And, mm. and so we need to be careful of, of how we use all those products. Things like bleach are a little different because they're more like a hammer. You know, when you're bleaching things, very few species are surviving. And so there's this kind of trade-off between when you use what kinds of things. But maybe I'm going off on a tangent. <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think it's important to talk about bleach in the context of our president talking about bleach not too long ago. Yeah, I mean, do not pour bleach in your anus. I'm not a huge fan of pouring very many things in the anus, but, the, but bleach for sure is one that you shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, we use so many of these products in our homes. What, what is your take on our kind of obsession with cleanliness? And, and have we just been brainwashed by you know, Procter and Gamble marketing or? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I won't single out Procter and Gamble. Uh, once we realized some of these species were, were bad, it was very easy for companies to convince us that we needed products to kill them all. Hmm. And because they're invisible, I mean, imagine if in your front yard, you were using uh, an herbicide that killed all your trees every time you used it. You would notice like, oh no, I accidentally killed all my trees. But in the microbial version, you don't see it. And so you, you use these products. Somebody has told you that something is changing when you do. Your direct view of it is very obscured. So it's easy to convince us. Mm. One of my favorite examples in this context is the International Space Station, which is like the case example for like, well, how clean could we keep things? How sterilized could they be? And still go about our lives. And the space station is interesting because everything that goes up there has to be treated in some way or another to try to keep the astronauts safe and also to keep from introducing new microbes into, into space. And so there are two separate parts of NASA that work on this. And so it's fair to think that, you know, NASA's got more control of this situation than you probably do in your apartment. And we also know like the space station, like nothing's flying into the space station through the windows. Right? So there's like that kind of control too. But then when you look in the space station, it's full of life. There are lots of species there. There are bacteria. There are tons of kinds of fungi. And what they favored inadvertently on the space station is a kind of like stuff you don't really want so much. It's not pathogens, but it's like body microbes that are just falling off the astronauts. It's mm. fungi that live on some of the metals and plastics. There was a dust mite on the Mir, the Russian uh, space station. There's a bunch of weird plant pathogens up there already, even before we're like seriously growing plants. And so just as a reminder, you're not going to make your house sterile. What kind of garden do you want? Like that's the, I think the question. And so going back to sourdough, that's why sourdough is so beautiful. It's the garden people already realize like, oh, look, I can experience the pleasure of this microbial garden. Mm. Then that's a kind of leverage to think about like, well, what other microbial gardens do you want? Yeah, do you think there'll be a future when we're going to be microbial gardening in our homes? I see sort of two futures with this. One's the short term, which is that all the same companies that sold you stuff to kill your microbes are about to sell you stuff to favor microbes. There are some products in the market already. There will be, in the coming years, a bunch, and they're not super well regulated in the U.S., and so my guess is the first round of these, it's really hard to tell the really effective 
indoor garden products from the total scams. And that eventually that we'll start to hone in on which ones of these work in some ways, sort of like probiotics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Some probiotics work, some don't. It's pretty hard to tell which are which, but, but yeah. I think that's starting to change a little. Connected to this idea, the idea of what's in our gut and food, this is such a big area to think about when it comes to the microbiome. How do you view the microbiome in the context of fast food, our modern diet and industrial farming? What effect is this having on us? In general, one way to think about fast food and industrial farming is to think about your gut microbes as a garden. The version of the garden that they favor is a version that's unusual and likes to eat sugar and very processed foods and tends to trigger inflammation. Mm. And so it's kind of a weird garden, and that's one of the dominant ones we're now favoring. Conversely, if you're eating lots of, of foods that have basically foods for our more traditional microbes, you keep favoring microbes that may not be perfect for us, like there's no evolution doesn't do perfection, but don't trigger inflammatory responses, seem to be a little bit more functional in our daily lives. And so I think we're going to see more and more a sense that these hyper-processed diets that we've shifted toward feed a set of microbes that we don't like very much. And, mm. and my guess is it's a little bit like the indoor environment, that what we see medically in response to that is, well, our two, two responses, one of which is, how do we think about diets that make more sense for a, a better gut garden? And then the other is going to be, what pill is going to keep these microbes that are not very good in check? And so one is kind of going, okay, we broke it. Let's add another layer to the broken thing. And the other is like, well, can we just unbreak it a little bit so it's not quite so bad? (laughs) You talk a lot, which I love about this idea of it's hard to study what we don't see or to understand what we don't see. And going all the way back to sort of ancient humans, I know you've studied it a little bit or tried to understand their relationship to the microbiome. What insights do you have from looking at ancient humans in terms of the microbiome? We've looked at this in a couple of ways. So one is that we're doing a lot of work with Christoph Bosch and other chimpanzee researchers in Germany to look at microbiomes of of chimpanzees. If we think about chimps, different chimpanzee populations use different tools. They have different culinary traditions. And so we might expect that those different traditions are associated with different gut microbes. And we've been thinking about, well, if we can learn that about that from studying chimps, what, what will it tell us about our ancestors? And so that's very much in process. Mm. But the expectation would be that if we look at these chimpanzees with very different diets, that they have different gut microbes. And one intriguing part about that and our ancestors is that it would then also suggest that even six million years ago, when we're thinking about our common ancestor with chimpanzees, that there wasn't one human gut microbiome. Probably already there were different ones that reflected different lifestyles. So that's one part that we're studying. But another part is that we're really starting to think about fermented foods and and early hominins. You know, is, is it possible that Homo erectus was fermenting food? When did humans start fermenting food? One of the really interesting anecdotes in this regard is, is work by Katie Amato at Northwestern University. And she's found that way more primates than we used to think actually seem to control fermentation in, in some way. And there's actually a capuchin monkey in Costa Rica that it takes these giant almendra fruits that it can't bite into, knocks them from the tree, leaves them on the ground to rot, and then comes back to them weeks later after they've rotted and eats them. Wow. 
you know, it's making kind of a wild fruit kombucha. <laughs> and so it, it then raises the question, well, a capuchin monkey, you know, it's pretty clever, but it's got a way smaller brain than did our ancestors. If it could ferment a fruit, what really prevents our ancestors from having done the same thing? And so we're thinking a lot about this. There's a cool experiment that a guy named Dan Fisher did at University of Michigan, where he was trying to think about not our far distant Paleolithic ancestors, but but Clovis peoples in North America and trying to figure out when the first peoples in the, the second group established in North America, were they fermenting mastodons? And he's found a bunch of evidence that suggests that maybe they were and that they were sort of storing them in, in ponds in the winter and sampling them through all winter. And the way he tested this is he got a friend to give him a dead horse and then he put the horse in a pond in Michigan, and then he went out and sampled it every couple of months and found that it got sort of like a nice cheese, kind of a blue cheese, and that he could eat that fermented mastodon for something like six months. And so wow. we're thinking more and more about this, and what does it mean about our, our past, and, and to what extent was the unusual thing that our ancestors did dietarily very early on actually to brew? So as we emerge from this pandemic, what's your greatest hope whether the microbiome scale or the macro scale? An immediate hope is that we can let the science of our understanding about the virus guide our actions about when we open up our states and countries and how, so we can control this virus as much as we possibly can and save lives. I guess that's the before the end of the pandemic, but it's going to be a while. Mm -hmm. After the pandemic, one really hopeful thing I've seen is the way that people have re-engaged nature. They've started to pay attention again. And maybe there's a way to use that re-engagement to lay the groundwork for a renewed connection to the life around us. And so we're thinking a lot in the lab about how do we facilitate that in a year from now? You know, are there ways we can make it easier for people who've noticed, oh, look, there are other species to keep paying attention to those species. I don't know quite what that looks like right now, but in some ways the the cities that have converted some of their roads into walking areas are kind of a metaphor for what you might hope for. You know, the pandemic triggered that transition. So now you have these downtown walking areas. What are you going to need societally to keep that going afterwards? And, and so I think thinking about that might be a hopeful road mm. forward. I hope that it's a reminder that a lot of the problems we're going to face in the coming years I think if you use hope and problems in the same sentence, maybe you're not being that hopeful. But the, uh, <laughs> the, the hope that a lot of the problems we face are problems that we can't address on our own, that we need global networks of people. On the one hand, there's been a lot of failure in global communication in the context of COVID-19. But on the other hand, the communication among scientists about new solutions, new observations it's been really unprecedented in a lot of ways. And so I think if we can realize that by being connected, by communicating freely, that we can do much greater things than we can do on our own, you know, that, that would be a hope. And I, I think that younger generations are more aware of that. And, and so maybe there's something there. I don't know. What, what, are, you, what are you too hopeful about? <laughs> we haven't had this question turned on us yet. I would agree with you. I mean, just to jump in, like the idea of communication and a re-engagement with nature is the most exciting part of this. I mean, last night I was walking with my wife. We've been doing this like hour walk at the end of the day. And, and I said, how do we continue doing this when we're not in a pandemic? How do we continue 
you know, cooking 21 meals a week? How do we continue to live in a way that's connected to the world around us? Because living in New York City and sort of ordering takeout a lot, you know, there's a sort of depressing quality to it at this point. There's no reason to go back. And and our estrangement from nature has been the root of a lot of emotional distress, I think, culturally. So I fully agree with your hopes. I don't know about you, Spencer, but that that resonated well with me. Yeah. Well, and I think connected to what you're saying, this idea of just taking time, taking time to cook, to walk, to think, to experience nature. You know, I think it's a lot easier to get caught up in busyness of of what we might call quote normal. But I think the idea of actually slowing down to take the time to to do things with meaning and greater thought is something I'm hoping more people are thinking about as we come out of this. Yeah, and I I agree with you both. And I I think the one way we can get in front of it would be that I think some of that needs to be to have a policy component, to be structural, to be built back into our lives. And so mm-hmm. How do we galvanize people around making some of those changes more permanent and easier? I'm always interested in the model of Danish and Dutch cycling. And my, my understanding of the history of urban cycling in Denmark and the Netherlands is that it started after the war when, when they were both relatively poor regions. And so there was just lots of biking mm-hmm. because people didn't have cars. And then that just became culturally embedded in the places. And then much later becomes hip and cool <laughs> and, you know, part of governance and policy and everything. And are there ways to embed these things in culture and policy so that they're sticky? And also just to, to elevate uh, your first hope, which is, you know, the idea of communication. And I think one of the things that's been missing is that there's not a whole lot of sort of cross-sector communication. You know, you're talking about scientists are speaking to each other globally. That's amazing. But it's also really important right now that scientists are speaking to, as you say, policymakers and economists and artists. And it's sort of getting, that's what's so fantastic also about your sourdough project as I was reading it is engaging outside of the community, the sector that you're in, because that's how real change happens. I totally agree with that. And for us, for the Sourdough Project, one of the things that's been really remarkable, you know, we do a lot of citizen science where the public contributes data, observations, components to scientific projects. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time what the public is contributing is a, is a picture, it's an individual data point, but not a hypothesis and not the kind of analysis that makes the whole but with, with sourdough, one of the things that's been really conspicuous is that all the time we find ourselves in situations where some member of the public knows more about some part of the sourdough story than we do or has some observation that totally changes our perspective. And so I think finding these, these ways to build on the deep knowledge that's distributed across you know, different publics around the world to do something better than you could do on your own I think is potentially very transformative and sourdough is kind of a toy example of it, you know, because it's bread, it's, it's food, it's delicious, but you know, it's not changing how we build our buildings or make our cities or design our streets. And yet, is there a way that we could leverage what works there to think about other kinds of things? And I don't, I don't fully know the answer, but it's one of the things I'll be spending a lot of time thinking about. Well, thank you so much for joining us there, Rob. This was a really exciting conversation that we're really looking forward to sharing. Oh, it was a real pleasure. And thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening. 
To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.